November 2020. I am not going to shut down the economy, period. I'm going to shut down the virus. That's what I'm going to shut down. So that's I'll say out. again. No national shutdown. January 2021. Because there's nothing we can do to change the trajectory of the pandemic in the next several months. May. In light of the end uh, uh, that we've been talking about, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, it's growing brighter and brighter. And it's July 4th. Let's celebrate our independence as a nation and our independence from this virus. We are winning the war against COVID-19. Our progress has been steady and it's beginning to take hold. Today, CDC is updating our guidance for fully vaccinated people. Anyone who is fully vaccinated can participate in indoor and outdoor activities, large or small, without wearing a mask or physical distancing. If you are fully vaccinated, you can start doing the things that you had stopped doing because of the pandemic. We will rebuild our economy, reclaim our lives, and get back to normal. We'll laugh again, we'll know joy again, and we'll smile again. July. This is becoming a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And doesn't the air just smell so much sweeter without our masks? <laughs> Doesn't it feel brighter without the shadow of the virus darkening our every thought? Freedom to hug a grandchild, to see a baseball game in person, to come back together again. America, leading the world out of a global pandemic with honesty and compassion. America's journey continues through fireworks and parades. Welcome to the Death Panel. Patrons, as always, thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do any of this without you. And if you're listening to this and you're not a patron, support the show at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod for access to all of our bonus episodes like this one. So here we are, rounding out the tail end of the second year of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, which has been a year that has felt like it's lasted a decade, just yeah. personally. And for some quick perspective, on the day of this recording, which is December 13th, ABC News announced that the United States has passed 800,000 official deaths um, coded for COVID-19. So for over 50% of the Biden administration, we have had over 1,000 COVID deaths a day in the United States. Um, today is the 183rd day of 347 days this year, where over 1,000 people a day have died of COVID, which is like 53% of the year. So... You know, and in November, as op-eds were published saying that even experts were not willing to give up on the holidays to stop the spread of the disease, <laughs> you know, encouraging people to gather together in person for Thanksgiving and travel. COVID was the third leading cause of death in the United States. And that's to say nothing of what it's going to look like in January and February. So, again, thousands of people per day have died for over half of the calendar year. Yet even as we find ourselves very clearly in a huge wave of death, illness and hospitalization, caused by Delta and facing the probability that the Omicron variant will outcompete Delta soon, um, with the majority of cases in the U.S. being detected in vaccinated people so far, by the way. 
The Biden administration has still refused to do anything other than pursue a vaccine-only strategy, even as they have refused to do anything to pressure global pharmaceutical companies to share their technology in order to help more vaccines get into non-rich countries. So it's been a long year of selfish behavior, gaslighting from the top, and abject failure, both on the side of policymaking and on public communication. And yet, somehow, I'm <laughs> expecting that the year-in-review uh, articles that we are now it's a year in review comes earlier and earlier every year <laughs> um, you know it's December just the like 1st. Christmas decorations right and I'm I'm expecting the the year in review articles this year are going to be have have the tone of like New Line Cinema presents this holiday season <laughs> you know um, just just sort of very blinkered view on on exactly what's happened uh, over the past year one if man. Two mRNA vaccines. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I've already sort of seen like a few, like the PolitiFact has like the Biden administration promise tracker and like mm. promise number one is like control the spread of COVID-19 and their rating is something like, we're, we're calling this one a work in progress. Um, oh and, and so I feel like the, uh, obviously like when we think about the year in review, it, it's often like uh, this kind of high level um, assessment, not of like what has happened, but of what the president has said, because the president is is now sort of regarded by the media as like the vibes guy, the vibes in chief guy. The I would call this sort of like it's like the John F. Kennedy disease. Uh, The (laughs) idea that like it's, you know, you look like primarily at what the person says and the vibe that they sort of cast and you forget for a second, like exactly what the presidency is and what it does and and i think that leads people to be very confused about like where we are what has biden done what has he contributed what has he not contributed and i think that when we look back through the the history like the episodes that we did and like the moments there is like a thread that comes together and it's a thread that really reveals something like pretty deep about the purpose of the presidency and like what the presidency is actually explicitly apparently not for uh, which is public health. <laughs> well, I think before, lest we get ahead of ourselves, though, we should be really clear. Listeners, you know the death panel. We're not necessarily ones to do your sort of stock year end, year in review. Yes, we're we not, not kind of simply doing this for kicks, you know. Um, I think the reason that we decided to sit down and have this conversation, which I think we're calling COVID year two, as kind of an echo of a really early episode that we did in like mid-March of 2020 called COVID year zero, mm-hmm. um, is to look at i mean there's so there's you know all these factors that both of you just mentioned there's i think people are pretty understandably confused about the state of the pandemic how bad things are why things are so bad even though obviously you know if you've been listening to the show consistently for the last year or more you know that i think we've been pretty consistently saying at like every turn things are not over seems like things are going to get bad and then unfortunately things do kind of continue to happen a pace like that but i think here's the thing okay i want to say especially because i think that we're going to unlock this in a a week or so like i want to say especially if you're sending this to someone or if you're someone who is not a listener of the death panel what i'm about to say may come as a surprise to you or may (laughs) even make you angry actually it seems Mm -hmm. like this really pisses people off when you criticize the biden administration's covid response um even the american prospect just ran like something recently that said like um it's like ineffectual to 
to critique the Biden administration's like, government response or whatever. that it was pointless to criticize them. Yeah, which it, is I forget just what they said, abs- like pointless in the extreme. Because ultimately they're like the only alternative you have are these like raving <sighs> psychopaths and lunatics. So Right. Yeah. But, but so here's the thing. Okay. So if this, if it upsets you, I just want like, we're going to go through a timeline. We're going to mm-hmm. walk through what happened this year. The point, literally the point of this episode is to talk through what the fuck just happened this yes. year. And specifically, at every turn, how many of the things that the Biden administration did in relation to the pandemic took things from bad to worse or blew opportunities that they might have had during windows that they could have taken advantage of. And I think it's the blown opportunities that for me, looking back at this year, have really made me the most frustrated. Right. And I think that the thing is, and again, we're going to... Much of this episode, we are going to be laying out the receipts. So again, if you you know don't necessarily believe what I'm saying, continue to listen and we're going to lay it all out for you. Yeah. But because I think what took us to 800,000 deaths as of you know the date of recording is not a story about Delta or other variants. Mm-hmm. Though that's a component. It's not a story about anti-vaxxers. It's not a story about Republican governor holdouts or whatever. It is specifically a story about decisions made by the Biden administration who do actually have a lot of responsibility for what happened. And I think, you know, it's it's kind of been hard to see unless you're paying really close attention. I think for all the discussion of COVID this year and for all the dominance that the pandemic has over the general discourse right now, so many people are still really genuinely confused about how we've gotten to the point where so many people are still dying. It's it's bewildering. Like, and I, I get that. But, you know, I think it's a really good time to reflect on how the last year has played out. It's clear that COVID is not going anywhere for all that people are talking about it magically transforming yeah. into a common cold that's mild. You know, a a um, a grown cat does not become a kitten again. That's not really how these things work, right? So, you know, the, the discussion around endemicity has really replaced the quest for herd immunity, which exactly. was the dominating narrative of the first year. So I think, you know, as we go into the second year, um, you know, it's remarkable that that messaging like pandemic of the unvaccinated only started over the summer. And yeah. I think it's kind of things like that, that like regardless of your politics and whether you agree with our you know, takes on who's responsible here, like you have to stop and sort of wonder if anything at all could have been done differently to get us to a different outcome than where we are now. Pretty clear that it could have. But also, I'll say generous, you know, I'll say to we're not going to get to everything. If you want the long version of it, I invite you to listen back to every last episode that we released this year. Um, We did actually walk like a lot of this stuff we, you know, walked through in real time. And Uh, I also just want to give like a big thank you and shout out to every last person who replied to a kind of call that I put out on Twitter Mm -hmm. over over the weekend. Um, I, you know, basically said that we were thinking about doing this and, you know, asked people for their sort of like highlights of the things that, you know, either made them the most frustrated or, you know, things things that they remember happening over the course of 2021 that they just like could not fucking believe coming out of like Rochelle Walensky's mouth or mm-hmm. Jill Biden's or something like that. And so I just want to thank every last person who commented um, on that. There were a lot of things that we had covered already uh, over the course of the year that we're going to be touching on. And we're not going to touch on everything that everyone brought up, but there were totally some things that I had just plain forgotten about. And so... 
really, really appreciative of that. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to listen and have the full experience, there's over a hundred hours of, of content from this year alone. Death panel so. does not constitute, nor does it contain medical advice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is not medical advice. Possibly don't um, listen. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to do a more targeted and accessible overview of COVID year two. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, after walking through the chronology, then we can d- dive into some takeaways too. Yeah. So before we get to, I think I'm going to start uh, start us off on the timeline in a second. But before I do, I have one thing to sort of read that I want to uh, put out to you as a way of, let's say, setting the tone. Um, both of you, B and Phil, okay, name of the game is when is this headline from? Ooh. Okay. Oh boy! I hate this. <laughs> one, read the headline. You, t- I know you hate when I. Pl- I know you hate when you. Uh, when I, I hate games. You to play games, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so I'm going to read the headline. You tell me when you think it was posted. Uh, this is a headline from Bloomberg. Biden team fears virus surge imperils pledge to curb pandemic. Oh. Ooh, I'm going to say April. Okay. February. Try, try again. February. All February. right. Who's uh okay? What, well, when else? But could it this also be? could be October or November or yesterday. Yeah. Do you guys give up? I'm gonna go uh, with this week. I mean, I I have my answer. All right. Uh, but I was was I wrong? <laughs> yep. Uh, that headline is from January twentieth, two thousand twenty-one, ah. inauguration day. I fear <laughs> that upon <laughs> taking office, of making guessed. our first promise that I will not be able to accomplish it, and uh, thus. Thank you for all of your hard work and uh, good night. This, the thing that really frustrates me about this, and I think I wanted to read that because I feel like, <laughs> I mean, really, the, the point is I wanted to read that <laughs> because I feel like this headline could have been posted any day this year, yes. frankly, yeah. Espe- particularly during like while Biden was, you know, after he assumed office on inauguration day. But the fact that it was posted on inauguration day, Biden team fears surge and perils pledge to curb pandemic. I mean, that really says it all. Literally, well, so, how many how many points have we not been there? But that also sets up the nice like first moment in the whole presidency, right? Which yep. or it sets up a nice, uh, shall we say, just like juxtaposition with the first moment, which is simultaneously the Biden administration saying. Uh, gee, we we may be an extremely powerful branch of government with a lot of like unilateral authority to do things, especially in crisis situations. <laughs> uh, and we're going to release this huge like 200 page plan uh, to deal with the, you know, COVID-19 pandemic. But also we're initially saying that uh, there are things that are like far beyond our control. That to me, that sets up that's like the the narrative of the entire at least that's like the public narrative of the entire presidency is trying to find ways of admit uh, uh, of claiming that uh, there are things like outside your scope of right. um, scope scope of variables that you have control over. No solution, no problem. And uh, and I feel like in the initial plan, there's you know that, that like 200 page plan or whatever like when did that come out January February that was like a couple of days later actually yeah like that was in that plan. There were also things that were like, you know, we're going to make sure that we have tests for people whose insurance like doesn't cover it. Right. And yeah. like we're, you know, it, there are all of these. If you like read deeper into the plan as we did, it's like there are all of these things where it's like it's designed to look like this huge shift of focus from the like Trump administration. And, and again, 
you know, to be the vibes president um, that, you know, makes sense. Mm -hmm. But then when you actually look at what's in it, it's like, you know, actually, uh, we're not going to change that much. Right. So um, I I cheated a little bit um, because I said that that wasn't, you know, that I wasn't beginning the timeline yet. But that's basically where my timeline begins. So (laughs) this, uh, you know, this is, I think, a really indicative headline from Inauguration Day. Obviously, the day before January 19th, 2021, they do this, uh, you know, little candle ceremony. Um, Mm -hmm. Biden and Kamala Harris, like, stand outside on the mall and, like, look at, uh, I think it's like 400 candles, which are supposed to symbolize the 400,000 deaths at that point. Um, Which, as of the other thing I'm going to do for this, um, just for listeners so that you have a sense of the scale, too, is on certain dates or as frequently as possible, I think I'm going to call out the amount of dead on that date. So January 20th, we were at 414,090 deaths. That's yeah. So that's, that's the beginning. They're setting the tone. They, they do as, as Phil, you're mentioning Biden administration comes in and they say that, you know, they're going to make all of these kind of sweeping changes to the pandemic policy. There's all of these rumblings about, you know, the CDC and uh, other things like the NIH have been, you know, there was the jettisoning, jettisoning during the Trump era of a lot of sort of Um, general government officials from a lot of different agencies and so there's you know rumblings about that and how difficult it is to get these agencies like Mm -hmm. functioning for what they want to have them do etc but um they do you know they act relatively quickly to put out at least statements on what they're going to do um they you know phil as you're mentioning they put out this 200 page sum document of stuff that they're going to do in response to the pandemic a lot of that at this point is related to increasing vaccine orders and and spreading those around. And actually, the kind of the first couple of months of the year, um, even like going back to our old episodes, for example, a lot of it mm-hmm. is spent. Um, we're talking a lot about like vaccine equity and how difficult it is, um, how like difficult it is for so many people to get the vaccine at all uh, in the beginning of the year. Um, but also just to call out on January 21st, Biden signs a bunch of executive orders, including mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just going to highlight this one because it's kind of the most important just for the, the, the through line that we'll, we'll look at, but including one executive order called Executive Order on Protecting Worker Health and Safety, where oh. he directs OSHA, a goody, a goody. the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to construct workplace safety guidance across sectors to be issued by March 15th. Um, which does not happen. I mean, it was around the, that the time executive I order happens. The OSHA guidelines are not released on March 15th. Right. And it's, it's around that time. I recall the, um, many publications actually started printing that picture of Biden that you can see with him with the little cigarette holder <laughs> and, uh, the little cigarettes and he's like, uh, uh the FDR. You know, photo. Like sort of, yeah, exactly. The little like, uh, FDR photo. So, um, you know, big, big executive order vibes. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, they release uh, they release this big pandemic plan. We actually have a, a episode. We do an episode on it. Um, not to put our we're, I'm mostly not going to privilege our position in this, but I will say, you know, immediately we do an episode on it. Basically, I think February 4th, that episode comes out and it is our sort of like review of the steps being taken at which it's one of the first of many times where we basically kind of say like this ain't it this is like not Mm going to do it well it's also like it's interesting because you know this whole big 200 page plan comes out but Mm -hmm. you know what what most people by the time that that plan 
you know, came out failed to note is that Biden had already taken a public line um, that, you know, differentiated himself from like Michael Osterholm, like the person it was ostensibly like, you know, one of the people on his uh, transition team for for coronavirus and saying like, oh, yeah, we might, depending on surges in the virus, have to like shut down the economy. Biden was explicitly like, we will not be doing that. Right. Uh, gonna, I don't know what this plan is going to say, but you know we're, we're, we're not going to be doing that. Yes, yeah. exactly. He be, says we're going to shut down the virus yeah, instead. Biden's yeah, Biden's quote in November of 2020 is quote I'm not going to shut down the economy. Period. I'm going to shut down the virus. Which um, and I can I, I can I do a little bit of foreshadowing here? Sure. Like there is a reason why if you look at outcomes compared to other like G7 countries, like U- U.S. like gross domestic product is at closest to parity with what it was before the pandemic uh, compared to like other, like every other G7 uh, country and why our like outcomes are, you know, as bad or worse than the worst uh, yeah. of the G7. Like, like this is why, right. It, the, the essential function of the presidency that Biden articulates in saying that before the plan is released and people get, in a way just mystified by the myth and ceremony of like the CDC and like the task force briefings and, and Jen Psaki and Fauci and, you know, uh, Zients or, or whomever this like roving cast of characters before people become mystified by that. Like Biden is saying it very clearly, like the function is the, of the president is the state stabilizer of the economic order in chief. Yeah. And it's like, I'm like, whatever else I might do on the pandemic, we're not going to do that. And there is like taking that line, you know, very specifically, very clearly, very early is like we we are committed to jacking up consumer spending and, you know, getting America back to work, which, as we'll Well, say, like by reopening schools and businesses. Yeah. Reopening schools was such a focus. And one of the things that we talked about early on is that, you know, delaying, uh, you know, not putting more pressure on OSHA, not prioritizing the OSHA guidelines to come out sooner, right? Even as it, it was clear throughout the fall and winter that workplaces were a major driver of outbreaks. Yes. You know, think about the Tyson Foods situation. Well, it been clear the previous the whole, year. The whole time, right, yeah, right. the whole time, in and, fact. And I think the hope was sort of like, okay, you have uh, a change in administration, right? Democrats have the executive branch, the House and the Senate, the hope is that, you know, we'll see some action on workplace safety. And March really felt like it was waiting too long because at this point, you know, when Biden comes into office, you know, we're averaging around 3000 deaths a day that we globally it's at 14,600 deaths a day. This is the first um, largest peak of the pandemic at this point. And we go on to repeat it only a few months later, globally hitting like 14,000, like even after all these measures are in place, right? So, you know, at this point, we're looking at a perspective of the pandemic where you need to act quickly, right? The implication is that the Biden administration was going to come in and act quickly, but they come into office and they start off with this foot of like, okay, in three months, we're going to hear from OSHA. Well, and then we don't. We don't hear from them until June and then then it's only for healthcare workers. We'll get into that. Yeah. So I just uh, while we're still in early February, I want to give a quick shout out to friends of the show, Abby Cardis, Justin Feldman mm-hmm. and Seth Prinz, um, who were among the only people like kind of with us in terms of being really adamantly from the very start critiquing the limited scope of the Biden pandemic response plans that had just been issued. So February 3rd, 
they publish, they, they co-author a um, op-ed in The Nation um, called Biden's Coronavirus Plan Will Not Prevent Death and Devastation. Holds up, unfortunately. Um, they basically say that like in order to do the vaccine rollout properly, um, we have to talk about doing a shutdown. Like we have to fucking do it. Like pay people to stay home, basically. And this is something that we talked about over and over during the Really, most importantly, to give give a chance for the vaccine to get rolled out without such a high level of community spread, because the fear and the concern, right, is that if you um, are rolling out the vaccine at the same point when there is unchecked community spread, you're going to encourage selective pressure on the virus. You're going to encourage mutations. You're going to encourage new variants and that it's not the ideal conditions that you want to be doing a vaccination campaign under. You know, it's it's really much more effective to do a vaccination campaign, not in the middle of an outbreak. (laughs) Right. And so there was a lot of discussion about this at that point. But that point completely was gone by March. Yeah. So February 12th, 485,000 deaths at this point. The CDC issues a school reopening document sticking with one of the pillars of Biden's uh, priorities, which is to in the first 100 days reopen schools. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm citing this not because anything particularly super important happened on this date, although we did review that document in an episode that was posted, I think, February 15th, but specifically because show favorite Emily Oster is not pleased um, writing in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also going to be part of it where I think I'm going to go through at least a couple of things that were kind of like the relevant sounding boards of um, some really bad because, you know, the a lot of the problems of the Biden administration response has also been sort of the feedback loop that happened between the Biden administration and liberal pundits like Oster. Right. So mm-hmm as we've talked Mm -hmm. about over the course of the year. So anyway, she writes a piece for uh, the New York Times headlined fully opening schools is urgent. Here's how to do it. She specifies that the regulations on masking and distancing suggested by the CDC for schools is too extreme that, um, quote, unvaccinated children and the presence of some COVID-19 and the presence of some COVID-19 should not prevent schools from reopening somewhat normally. All right. A lot of others kind of get in uh, on this bandwagon as well. February 20th, Vinay Prasad writes in Stat News, the two core pillars of the CDC's new guidelines that schools should decide whether to open based on community transmission and that students should strive to be spaced six feet apart are not supported by science. (laughs) Um, Just to remember a time before I knew the name Vinay Prasad is like just amazing to me too. Here's a nice little uh, detail. That op-ed that Vinay Prasad releases Mm -hmm. where he says that the uh, CDC recommendations on school reopening uh, are too stringent and not based in science is published February 20th. What else happens on February 20th? We hit 500,000 dead. Nice. Um, Of course, the New York Times, uh, just to shout out really quickly, lest we forget, um, despite the fact that on May 24th, 2020, um, when we hit 100,000 dead, the New York Times ran that big, you know, their their front page was all the names, right? Uh, February 21st, 2021's New York Times front page is basically just like, it literally like has a bar in the middle with all of the names shrunken down so tiny that you like can't even read it. And there are like other stories on the side. So that shows you kind of how, you know, the, I don't know, the priorities and trying to make an impact here, mm-hmm. I guess. Anyway, so uh, stuff 
kind of uh, goes on late February. We start getting uh, things like this. Boston Globe, dozens of physicians urge Massachusetts school leaders, three feet of distance between students is enough. This stuff is all important to highlight because specifically like there was such social pressure mm-hmm. on the administration, um, like from without the, from without the administration on reopening schools uh, and a lot of like business pressure basically to do so specifically because how are you going to reopen and like how are you going to make people go back to work if their children are not in school? Right. Exactly. So we've uh, talked about this stuff at length. Um, March 10th, mm. 532,000 dead. Still no OSHA recommendations. Still no OSHA recommendations, even though they are supposed to have been released five days from this date. March 10th, the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases publishes a paper titled Effectiveness of Three Versus Six Feet of Physical Distancing for Controlling Spread of Coronavirus Disease 2019 Among Primary and Secondary Students and Staff. This would go on to be cited as highly influential and something that was about to happen um, that we'll get to in a second. And... One of the authors on the paper, Emily Oster herself, Ms. Emily Oster, um, economist queen of sending children to, a, you know, debility and death. Yeah. Oster uh, makes a little tweet thread about this study saying uh, on March 11th, the day after 533,661 dead, quote, this data suggests schools can be open as safely with three feet distancing as with six feet. It is important because in many districts, bringing all students back will not be possible if six feet is required. So this is an important thing, too, because Mm -hmm. if you remember the reason, one of the big reasons motivating the six feet versus three feet thing was not even the idea of like some kind of like scientific efficacy, but was more like if we say we have to do six feet of distancing, schools are so crowded that like, how are you going to do that? Mm-hmm. You can't get them in. Yeah, it was it was more an argument about, you know, feasibility than it was about what was actually um, necessary. Right. Or scientifically supported. And I, and I think the thing that was amazing is that is that almost immediately the idea that the dropping of, um, you know, major social distancing practices was actually a science driven thing. And I feel like part of part of what comes out of the three to six foot change is a lot of discussion that begins of people who are, you know, quote unquote, like um, addicted to lockdown (laughs) and the resistance to changing this arbitrary guideline, right, which they they say initially is because of economic feasibility, really, right? Like that we really don't have the resources to open schools um, with that kind of distancing in public schools in the United States because we don't have filtration in classrooms. There is not the kind of space. Um, classrooms are overcrowded, right? The staff ratios are really low. The you know, and and that immediately is gone and pathologized as this kind of like you know over anxious fear of something that's not supported by science right yeah. when when really it's like they said all along they said up front this is an economic priority argument right and We're, yeah and, you and know it's, no and, and it's actually very there's a mirror um and if you and if it i think the thing with the school um closing thing is is like a bit amorphous because it's like rec, it's like guidelines and so uh, you know like the Biden administration evades some responsibility there or at the very least they're like well you know they, they get away with like waffling a little bit but it's actually mirrored in the way that they treat the OSHA thing yeah so basically we're in March still right yeah so uh around March 15th is when you know, there's some news about OSHA like drafting 
some p- potential guidelines for um, this standard. And what happens is uh, the chamber, uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce comes out and says, um, oh, yeah, this absolutely not. Uh, this is going to be like there's no way uh, that they're going to get this like standard through. Uh, we're requesting uh, meetings uh, with uh, Office of Management and Budget uh, to stall this thing. And Jen Psaki uh, asked about it a few days uh, before, I think uh, sort of like mid-March. She's asked like, you know, do you think that this uh, OSHA rule could potentially hurt businesses? She's like, well, we want to delay the process so that we can <laughs> make sure that we have time to get it right. This is her quote. Oh boy. Uh, she said the agency should, quote, have time to get it right. So you can see very clearly the administration is working like hand in glove uh, yeah. with organized uh, business. Well, and in uh, to, just that decision, it's like it shows you who's prioritized. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. Like, Absolutely. It's like to get it right could also be to save a bunch of lives of people who exactly. are employed in high risk jobs. I and mean, it's important to know, like, God. like, does OMB have to take the meeting with uh, like the chamber? Uh, yeah, they, they take meetings. Uh, do they have to delay the decision to the extent that they do? Absolutely no. not. OSHA is drafting text by that point in time in March. They yeah. could promulgate it. At any time, but OMB is holding it up because it's decided that the concerns of like the chamber are more important than like workplace safety and health and like getting a standard in place. And again, to go back to Biden's statement, even before he took office as president elect, it's not just that he meant like we're not going to shut down the economy or we're not going to like have a like a lockdown of the sort that like maybe you might have seen like Austria, re- you know, reimposed like uh, like a few weeks ago. It's like we're also not going to do anything that might invoke the wrath of the U.S. chamber. Right. So and a lot of that stuff is not publicly acknowledged until June too which like there's so there's right. frankly so much that happens immediately before that too so i think um that's um all that stuff is important to note as happening you know simultaneously to these things like the internal discussions about this are absolutely happening at the same time uh as all of this but um yeah we'll get to sort of what happens with that and then what comes to light about it too back back to like mid march um March 18th, 540,909 dead. Once again, Emily Oster. Emily Oster publishes her piece in The Atlantic. I just wanted to call this out as a significant signpost because I think it actually was kind of a huge turning point. Publishes her piece in The Atlantic. Think about your unvaccinated child. Classic. Like a vaccinated grandparent. Where she says, quote, the best available research indicates that families with young children don't, in fact, have to live like it's 2020 until 2022. Parents can go ahead and plan on barbecues and even vacations, et cetera, et cetera. Children are not at high risk for COVID-19. The central goal of vaccination is preventing serious illness and death. From this standpoint, being a child is a really great vaccine. Um, But this I think this shows some of the, you know, stuff that you were that has has been sort of mentioned offhand a little bit, which is that like, because vaccines are starting to roll out specifically, you know, it's been some time since some of like the first people who were able to like get vaccinated, uh, have been told, you know, go ahead and like kind of, kind of live your life. The mask, uh, masking recommendations are still in place, but there's all of this sort of like pent up liberal frustration basically mm-hmm. about people continuing to tell them like, you have to live with, 
like pandemic restrictions right or i mean this was the this was sort of the beginning of the the sort of new peak of of the indignant do i really have to wear masks outside now response yeah. when you barely had the vaccine rolled out to anyone yeah. and also you know like the commentary it's worth saying you know the commentary on the risk of covid to children Right. Like all of these assumptions and all of these points that are being made at this point are based on data from the first year when schools are largely closed. Yeah, exactly. And uh, through late February, there were only 271 children in the United States who had like died of COVID. And um, about 700 plus more have died since Biden took office. And that really shows the way that this rhetoric changed. Right. Well, specifically for children. by like September, something like 500 children had died. Right. And now we are sitting at almost a thousand. Yes. Total. So it's not, it doesn't take a lot to figure out what happened here. Schools reopened anyway. Right. So, but okay. So that's March 18th. Um, and I, I say this because the, some parts of this timeline are staggering to me. So that op-ed that um, we cr- criticized to no end over the course of this year. The and people said we were being too mean to Emily Oster. <laughs> so that was March 18th. March 19th. Guess who gets their fucking wish about CDC schooling recommendations? The day Emily after Oster. that. Yes. Washington Post, March 19th, uh, 2021, CDC says three feet between students is usually enough, a change that paves the way for more in-person instruction. New York Times headlined, in a boost to reopening schools, CDC says students can be three feet apart. And then it says, like, literally, the I think one of the first uh, sentences in this, or no, sorry, the deck of the New York Times uh, story is parents and school leaders celebrate new CDC guidance lowering distance between uh, between students to three feet. Teachers aren't on board yet. So there you go. Yes. Labor, everybody. Right. Because those those darn teachers unions, they just don't want to do anything. You know, all those teachers, they want to sit home on their butts teaching over Zoom instead of being childcare for a bunch of disease vectors in the classroom with no <laughs> ventilation and no support from the administration. You know. Yeah. March 30th, 551,000 dead. Rochelle Walensky tells Rachel Maddow on her show that uh, vaccinated people cannot get or spread COVID. Um, (laughs) I mean, remember when we used to have like long arguments into the night with people about that shit? You know, the idea that um, people thought that we were being like we were inspiring vaccine hesitancy by saying there is no data on transmissibility because it wasn't studied at that point. Still happens. Just today, I saw a viral tweet that is like, People are quote tweeting and dunking on uh, some, I I don't know, some like official in Canada or something who posted like vaccinated and unvaccinated people can spread COVID. And people are posting like, I I think the one like they're they're posting like, yeah, um, Serena Williams and I can both play tennis. You know what I mean? Like they're, it's like doing this whole like, yeah, yeah. like, you know, Michael Phelps and I can both swim, et cetera, or whatever. This like, is what I mean. Gaslighting from the top down. Yeah, yeah. Trickle, trickle down gaslighting. Um, but it's essential. I mean, it's yeah. absolutely essential if you think about it in the context of the president being 
the manager of capitalism in the United States. Like <laughs> right. that exactly. is yeah. Chief, yeah. So the question is, it's like we uh, this Assistant we impose this manager, throughout. Please. Well, no, we impose <laughs> this throughout, right? Which is like, um, the how, like, how are they going to get away with ending the pandemic uh, yeah. sociologically? And it was never like. The a lot of the initial like liberal hysteria was like, oh, Trump's just not going to like they're just not going to like collect the data and they're just like not going to report the numbers. And like, uh, you know, you would see the same thing about like Republican governors. But in reality, it doesn't matter if you report the numbers and you can explain them away. You don't have to you don't have to do a like epidemiological coup d'etat to make this happen. All you have to do is do what, you know, uh, American institutions do so well, which is like hegemonically like reproduce the idea that everything is okay. And Americans more than happy to accept that because what do we need vibes? When do we need them immediately? (laughs) Um, I mean, there are still people that are debating whether or not we're actually undercounting COVID deaths in the United States, even when the CDC itself has come out and said we're undercounting COVID deaths. There's still people that will come into the comments and debate you saying, well, did they, are they, did they die with COVID or did they die due to COVID? Yeah. You know, and this is the argument that Germany is also like really embroiled in right now. So it's not like these like uh, discourses like disappear after they like dissipate in one country. Just like the virus, the shit moves around right. and recirculates. Um, speaking of stuff that has certainly gotten around and recirculated, uh, I don't know if this is the sort of first iteration of this but i think this is a very indicative uh moment right here april 12th 561,000 dead and i think the sort of liberal angst about trying to get everyone a vaccine and then just get it over with regardless of trying to do any other mitigation measures on top of vaccines has crested to the point where uh, Edward Isaac Dover writes in The Atlantic, AP's headlined vaccine refusal will come at a cost for all of us. Quote, imagine it's 2026. A man shows up in the emergency room wheezing. He's got pneumonia and it's hitting him hard. He tells one of the doctors that he had COVID-19 a few years earlier in late 2021. He had refused to get vaccinated and ended up contract uh, and ended up contracting the coronavirus months after people got their shots. Why did he refuse? Something about politics or pushing back on government control or a post he saw on Facebook. He doesn't really remember. His lungs do, though. By the end of the day, he's on a ventilator. You'll pay for that man's decisions. So will I. We all will in insurance premiums. If he has a plan with your provider or in tax dollars, if the emergency room he goes to is in a public hospital, the vaccine refusers could cost us billions, which is the beginning. Again, well, not necessarily the beginning, but I think really one of these pieces that kicks off a huge wave of this like now that the vaccine is a thing that uh we're assuming is the silver bullet for the pandemic and that more people have gotten why not make people pay more in insurance premiums if they don't get it or why not just say fuck them fuck the unvaccinated you know what i mean it's so interesting how early this does show up too you know what i mean it's it's like it's so strange because I feel like whenever I look back through like the my notes for like that I was using to prepare for this episode and like I'm just noticing new things that I'm like, oh, that is right before this thing or this yeah. like actually was months prior, 
you know. I mean, in some ways, I feel like actually going through the timeline, I feel like we're still very much living in um, the Twilight Zone created by April, May, uh, because yeah, absolutely. when not only is that uh, something that, you know, again, that's in April, here's another thing also from the Atlantic. So, you know, when I've said many times on the <laughs> show, like the misinformation and bullshit perpetuated by the Atlantic is at least as bad as all of the horse medicine bullshit. Like, this is what I mean. Yeah, 4th, like, I'm sorry. Like, this is, the Atlantic is worse than the ivermectin shit. Like, hands down. I'll, I'll say that. May I'm 4th, happy to stake that. 577,454 dead. The Atlantic. I mean, we've had so many deaths since then. Jesus Christ. The liberals who can't quit lockdown. Here we go. This is what B was talking about earlier. Uh, quote, for this subset of what is referred to by the writer as pandemic addicts on Twitter. Uh, for Disgusting. this subset, diligence against COVID-19 remains an expression of political identity, even when that means overestimating the disease's risks or setting limits far more strict than what public health guidelines permit, which is, I remember making fun of this on the show, and this is hilarious considering what is about to happen uh, some 10 days later in terms of what those public health guidelines are and how they changed. Sorry to just run through that, but may I actually? Because this is a really good one. Uh, I'm obviously skipping over May 5th. Catherine Tai says that the U.S. will support a narrow trips waiver, etc. <laughs> that happened. That's definitely happened. Anyway. Um, yeah, read our piece for New inquiry. <laughs> so this is kind so of a relevant. two-parter. May 12th, 582,636 dead. Biden gives a speech during which he says, quote, let me conclude with this. In light of the end of that we've been talking about, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, it's growing brighter and brighter. I'm just quoting directly. I don't know. Uh, and we all need you to bring it home. On July 4th. We all need you to step into the light for the economy. <laughs> on July 4th. Let's celebrate our independence as a nation and our independence <sighs> of this virus. We can do this. May 13th. One day later. 583,418 people dead. Rochelle Walensky's press briefing. briefing quote. Considering all these factors data on vaccine effectiveness, the science on our ability to protect against circulating variants, and growing understanding of the low risk of transmission to others. Today, CDC is updating our guidance for fully vaccinated people. Anyone who is fully vaccinated can participate in indoor and outdoor activities, large or small, without wearing a mask or physical distancing. If you are fully vaccinated, you can start doing the things that you had stopped doing because of the pandemic. We have all longed for this moment when we can get back to some sense of normalcy. Now, this is amazing. This is now, this is May, right? So in, in April, we hit that second global peak of having 14,000 plus deaths a day that I said that was going to happen, right? That was, we were seeing explosions in case numbers in India. We were still seeing 700 deaths a day on average in the United States that week. Yeah, And it is one of the smallest points in this year, right? It is one of the points this year where the, the virus is most under control. And I think that's like important to note that this is one of our um other this is one of the major missed opportunities this that we like were talking about, right? This is the, right. This is the yeah. one here. Because if you know, even if the OSHA regulations had still been as fucked as they ended up being, right? Even if we had all of the same um, you know, issues with pushing for school reopenings, right? If we had not really 
opened everything up and told people, you don't need NPIs now that you had the vaccine right. in May. What would fucking August and September so and October would have looked like? Yeah. Imagine, sure. too, if we had done a fucking paid shutdown right then. Also, you know, notwithstanding, this reopens travel and tourism and encourages people from the United States to go abroad. And this well, is and at a point where... It solidifies the message. If you have been vaccinated, things are no longer your, your problem. problem. Exactly. It's no longer and a pandemic for you. You're no longer in the pandemic. Exactly. And it's, I think I think the, the pandemic of the unvaccinated line is, is often... Um, described as uh, an attempt to reduce the causation to um, the unvaccinated. It is, it sort of functions a little bit differently than that in the world. It ends up being like a, this is a pandemic and you should treat it as such if you are unvaccinated. If you're right. not, however, it's, you're no longer in it. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, it, it, this is what like Greg Gonzalez has been calling um, for like the past month, like the uh, American fortress approach to pandemic response, you know, which is the, the idea that all along we've treated the U.S. borders as some sort of like viral barrier. Right. So that we can make decisions um, independent to like not only the context of like intrastate spread but globally where cases are at right you know instead we choose to do things like shut down travel to south africa when they identify a variant um through their like superior surveillance systems right you know we've we've taken this punitive approach that not only pretends that you know the the border is some kind of physical virus barrier but also that we have taken action, right? But all of the actions that that have been aggressive like this have been these sort of carceral, useless interventions that are way more about um, just, you know, optics than they are anything else. Yeah. Um, so also shout out to um, Justin Feldman again, who tweeted May 13th, um, that same day that Walensky made that announcement. Uh, pretty interesting that the CDC anti-mask guidance comes the very week the White House is supposed to be concluding its review of the OSHA COVID standard, which gets us, I think, to the next thing that um, I do want to f- like finally get into because I think we're finally getting to that is that indeed, as Justin was mentioning, though it would continue to be kind of held back, you know, one of the dates as as it was continually kind of pushed back and pushed back, one of the dates it was supposed to come out was like around mid-May, basically. Um, that the OSHA standard would be uh, put out, which would be, you know, putting in place some like actual, you know, OSHA regulations for trying to like limit spread in workplace settings. May 12th, we have uh, some information going public about something that uh, Phil was mentioning earlier. Uh, roll call Prince's story delayed COVID-19 worker protections attract crush of lobbyists where they talk about the extremely high amount of meetings that OIRA is taking with different uh, business lobbyists. June 10th, 596,619 deaths. OSHA regs are finally issued only for healthcare workers, <laughs> only in the healthcare sector. Mm-hmm. Um, Classic. June 22nd, we passed 600,000 deaths. June 28th, at 601,851 deaths. Bloomberg posts the original draft of the OSHA regulations, or at least if not the original and earlier draft, showing that, in fact, uh, I'll just quote from the Bloomberg piece from June, quote, the 780-page draft standard and justification formally submitted to the White House on April 26th made it clear 
Occupational Safety and Health Administration staff had concluded, quote, grave danger threatened the health of all U.S. workers, not just workers in healthcare who had been deemed essential during the darkest days of the pandemic. This was such a telling moment because I, you know, I think it was just so gratifying and depressing to see how right we had been about the delays and about how sketchy the whole discussion around workplace safety had been. And this was also largely coupled with um, refusal to acknowledge that the virus was like transmissible via aerosols, which I think is really important to remember that, you know, still this time last, you know, this time in the pandemic, like through June and July, this is an active debate that we're having about fomite transmission still and whether or not we need ventilation in workplaces. And, you know, the OSHA should have played a large part in supporting the use of ventilation practices and overhauling HVAC. And this was like an enormous missed opportunity, right? As many things, you know, leveraged via OSHA have been. But, you know, it's just... (sighs) Interestingly, the day after these OSHA regs, the original draft uh, is, you know, revealed by Bloomberg, um, June 29th, Biden posts a uh, 4th of July ad saying oh God. America is open for business. July 4th, 603,319 deaths. Um, nothing super significant happens from a policy side here, but I'm calling it out because partying happens in Provincetown, Massachusetts, uh, which will end up in a lot of breakthrough infections in cases of Delta. The CDC will study these in an MMWR and be slow to act. And we will be hearing about this event shortly. (laughs) So that's July 4th. Um, July 9th, uh, the three versus six feet stuff and more of the, you know, Emily Oster school of reopen schools right fucking now comes home to roost or gets even, you know, further push. The CDC July 9th releases new school guidance with emphasis on full reopening. What was it about? Uh, Here's the New York Times, quote, one major shift is a recommendation for physical distancing. The agency continues to advise that students be spaced at least three feet apart. But with a new caveat, if maintaining such spacing would prevent schools from bringing all students back, there you they go. could rely on a combination of other strategies, as in even yeah, less three space. Feet, but I don't know. Amazing um, how quick that goes from six to three to, <laughs> to you whatever. Know, whatever you can, uh, you know, afford. In another shift, the CDC made clear that masks could be optional for vaccinated people in line with its recommendations for the general public. So that's great. That's just great. July 16th. Very important day. 606,583 dead. Rochelle Walensky at a press briefing. Today, Dr. Fauci and I want to provide some perspective about these numbers and how we should be thinking about where we are at this critical moment in the pandemic. There is a clear message that is coming through. This is becoming a pandemic of the unvaccinated. There we go. So there we have it. Um, Meanwhile, keep in mind, the Provincetown MMWR is being prepared at the CDC while she says this. We talked about this on the show, but I I think that this timeline is really important to specify. Literally, the CDC, the agency that Rochelle, is in, that Rochelle Walensky is in charge of, is preparing the MMWR talking about breakthrough infections and cases of Delta. It's just amazing hypocrisy. July 27th, 609,425 dead, notably... Uh, 11 days after she makes this comment. CDC is trying to, as we put it on the show, put the lid back on Pandora's box. 
this is when the CDC reverses its uh, masking recommendations uh, indoors, even for those vaccinated, which I think just generally is um, it's pretty clear that this was too little too late. Right. You know, well, I mean, they, they shouldn't have done it in the first place is like the obvious they answer of the masking. But I think yeah. it shows also and it's important to show just how quickly things get out of hand when you roll back NPIs, because even though it actually didn't take that long for them to realize how badly they fucked up and try to roll it back, it still was too late. Right. Because viral spread is exponential. And that seems to be a fact that no one in the administration is willing to admit publicly at this point still. Yeah. Here are two headlines from the same day. New York Times, as virus cases rise, another contagion spreads among the vaccinated. Anger. Fuck me. Um, And this is... Here's a quote from that article. As coronavirus cases resurge across the country, many inoculated Americans are losing patients with vaccine holdouts who they say are neglecting a civic duty or clinging to conspiracy theories. So, you know, once again, just saying like saying things like a, a pandemic of the unvaccinated has fucking consequences. Um, same day, more or less AP Associated Press states scale back virus reporting just as cases surge. Um, which is about something that we talked about at length on the show um, where Nebraska, Iowa, South Dakota and other states were slowing down reporting or in the case of Nebraska, actually for a period stopped reporting cases, which was something. Anyway, um, July 29th, uh, 610,132 dead. The CDC document leaks, a CDC document leaks showing high transmissibility of the Delta variant with the uh, interesting phraseology in this uh, PowerPoint slide, which we did a whole episode about more or less um, saying that quote, the war has changed. That deck was so fascinating. Yeah. New York times covers this as quote, CDC internal report calls Delta variant as contagious as chicken pox. Um, the whole report cites the Provincetown, Massachusetts MMWR, which would be released a couple of days later. By this point, breakthrough deaths are also happening um, I'll probably get to this later because this information doesn't come out until September 17th. But nevertheless, in a, uh, I just want to call out while we're here in August or while, while we're here at like the end of July and the beginning of August, August 5th, Walensky uh, says in an interview that the data that they were referring to about breakthrough cases or about like the the uh, idea that like uh, the vaccinated can't get or spread the virus was data collected January through June. Mm. So much less prevalence of vaccination at that point. Also considering that the masking recommendation wasn't dropped until May, a very right. different world in terms of non-pharmaceutical interventions, um, the use of masks and other stuff like that. Sorry. I know this is like a lot. No, not at all. Um, August 14th, boosters become the silver bullet, the new silver bullet. Um, the Amazing Biden administration how quick that is. On the 14th of August, announces plans uh, for vaccine boosters for all, perhaps as soon as fall. Obviously, um, you know, as we got into on the show, and I won't repeat a lot of the stuff here because a lot of the back and forth is not important uh, over what exactly happened there. But, you know, they had planned to do early boosters earlier in the fall, and clearly it didn't work out because um, their own advisory board said, like, no. Um <laughs> Here's just this isn't a really important one, but I thought this was interesting. August 19th. I mean, this is important, but it's not a, you know, August 19th, Kaiser Family Foundation. Most private insurers are no longer waiving cost sharing for COVID-19 treatment. I want to highlight that. Okay, yeah, go for it. This is very, very significant. And Mm -hmm. this fact is like very much glossed over. Like 
you know, in the broader assessments of like the Biden administration's performance on, you know, the pandemic, one one of the the, the big like lines that Biden sort of trotted out is like no one is going to, you know, go into uh, bankruptcy for um receiving treatment for COVID, like everyone's going to be, you know, like the, the the whole pandemic has highlighted the importance of like building on the work of the Affordable Care Act and, and so on. And it's just like this moment where insurers are like, yeah, you know what? Uh, the fact that uh, you're going to be paying like 10 to 20,000, perhaps more uh, for any sort of like COVID related stay in the, like this yeah. is, uh, you know, just glossed over without any, um, any sort of like passing like consequence at all. And instead what's happening around this time is the focus of the attention on the pandemic is shifting more and more to, um, the, like the economic recovery and like where, uh, you know, the like return to employment is most sluggish. Yeah. Right. That that's like that's mm-hmm. the line is that like some sectors are really lagging behind in terms of people's desire, willingness to return uh, to work. And this is also the moment where, you know, we're like whatever, mid-August, we're two weeks away from a bunch of pandemic uh, protections yeah, uh, just expiring. expiring. Uh, this is around the time that, like, rent, like the the is, is incredibly obvious. That, like, unless Congress acts, eviction uh, moratoriums are gonna, uh, you know, completely expire. They've already been like challenged at court. It's also the the moment where the like extended on, uh, UI is is like very clearly uh, gonna uh, go out by September, and the. Like the the main line that you hear out of um, like Jerome Powell, uh, Federal Reserve Chair, is like, uh, well, vaccinations have improved the pace of economic recovery. And uh, but it's not just vaccinations. And like that's that's the thing that Powell like sort of neglects to note. It's not just vaccinations. It's the fact that the the message from the administration, uh, which is then being like reproduced over and over again, mm-hmm. is safe to return to work and like if yeah. you don't that's that's in a sense your problem well and, and if reinforce- you don't there's no program at all to, right there's, there's not right. you know the, like uh fucking um uh unemployment benefits are expired right so this is um in general uh the economy is beginning to recover like consumer spending completely like surges beyond where it was before the pandemic yeah. Uh, like before, like in 2019, it's it's way past that point uh, then, which is you know, very different than uh, like EU, uh, like countries in the EU and Japan. Um, and it's like at that moment uh, that like the shift becomes uh, we're going to focus on like uh, boosters, but also what the problems now are not what we failed to do, but emerging variants that, you know, we can't seem to control or can't seem to get a handle on, which is actually a nice echo back to what was said, uh, what the line was from the Biden administration on the first day uh, after being sworn in, which is like, oh, yeah, there are these variants that we we might not be able to do anything about. Right. And also, it's crucial to note that in a lot of southern states by this point, schools are open already because school starts earlier 
And throughout the summer, we had MMWR after MMWR that were really, you know, looking at small populations of outbreaks among children in summer camps. Lots of summer camps had to be canceled. Kids were sent home despite testing regimes that were in place and the rollout of of vaccinations among camp adults, right? We were still having these little outbreaks in camp, right? Yet that is not stood up as a reason to do any sort of additional interventions in terms of ventilation, masking, um, social distancing in schools. It has not given anyone pause um, in the administration, nor have they indicated publicly that they plan to walk back, um, you know, pushing states to reopen schools. And what begins to happen in the first week of September is we start to see a major uptick in infections in children. Mm -hmm. And The American Academy of Pediatrics recently basically had to sort of stop reporting the weekly case counts um, that they were reporting because data has gotten so patchy. Right. And states have been reporting this less and less. So, you know, the picture that we had in August, right, before we really reopened schools showed us what we were going to experience throughout the fall. And this is another major missed opportunity where there were clear signs that the CDC itself had been reporting in its own MMWRs that really told us that we were moving too fast. No, yeah, I mean, back to school, back to work was like the worst possible thing you could do. Worst possible thing that we could have done. And I think this is, but this is really important because we're getting to now, I think now we're, so now that we're in like um, mid-August, early September, I think, you know, this is obviously very recent history. This just happened. But but also I think that, you know, I don't know, I, I experienced this fall. So many people, I think even, you know, people who had been working remotely for a long time, um, certainly like kids who had been uh, taking school remotely, including some universities, et cetera, like went back in person for the first time. A lot more people were like forced back in person again than even had before, obviously acknowledging that a lot of people never were doing remote stuff and were like constantly in the workplace the whole time obviously Mm -hmm. but like it was yes the worst possible thing that you could do to just sort of mass say okay everyone back to school back to work um at the beginning of august and it is no surprise as we talked about really at the you know in the beginning of the fall it is no surprise that we are where we are now but still it is upsetting to me to look back to this recent history and think you know okay so like september 10th right Six hundred fifty-seven thousand nine hundred ninety-seven dead we are at that point back to the 1000 deaths a day territory basically uh at or around there and the biden administration has just let as phil was talking about a bunch of pandemic uh benefits programs expire or protect or general protections um expire and you know we're seeing all of these horrible indicators and what does biden say on september 10th quote this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated two months after Walensky first said it and it's still been you know many people said it in between obviously i'm just saying he's still saying it in speeches two months later this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated and it's caused by the fact that despite america having an unprecedented and successful vaccination program despite the fact that for almost five months free vaccines have been available in eighty thousand locations we still have nearly 80 million americans who have failed to get the shot um so which is just the fact that like we reopened schools before the eua for vaccinating children yeah. forward is is just ridiculous because what happens between that first week of september and like you know beginning of december is two million kids in the united states 
test positive for COVID. Yeah. That's like millions of infections that we could have mitigated. By midfall, I remember it being also that like 300 kids a day were being hospitalized. So anyway. And who knows what's going to happen in terms of post-viral syndromes and everyone who's gotten infected. Totally. Right? We have no idea. And post-viral diseases are some of the most stigmatized autoimmune diseases out there that are barely studied. We don't know what we're dealing with at all. September 17th, seven days later, after seven days after Biden's speech, a um, CDC MMWR is released um, that we talk about on the show. We did a, we did a, a big segment on it, I think. Um, and this is weird because this is so recent and I feel like I forgot about it and it frustrates me a lot. Um, <laughs> this uh, MMWR is called Monitoring Incidents of COVID-19 Cases, Hospitalizations and Deaths by Vaccination Status, 13 U.S. Jurisdictions, April 4th to July 17th, 2021. Recall that I said earlier that on August 5th, um, Walensky was asked in an interview, you know, where is the, uh, where's the data from for, you know, saying that, um, the vaccinated are like protected and that like breakthrough infections are incredibly rare and never get serious or mm-hmm. something. Right. And she says like, oh, the data is from January through June. So this is data. <laughs> this is an MMWR on uh, data from April to July. It is not, you know, it, it is only from certain jurisdictions, but it does show a number of breakthrough cases and people with breakthrough cases dying right. from April through June. We obviously know that some, like, we, we know now that, like, people can have breakthrough infections that lead to death. Like, we we have people who are friends of the show who have experienced that to their, fa- like, fucking family members. You know, right. this is a thing that we, like, we know can happen, even though many people will, will like say that it doesn't exist or whatever, but we know this is something that can happen, but it's important to note that like, there wasn't a lot of data on this before. And, um, this does show that if between April and mid July, literally July 17th, <laughs> like, so they stopped collecting the day after she used the pandemic of the unvaccinated line <laughs> the first time, uh, this shows Wait, that, really? that, Wait, yes, really? The, the day, day after? after? Well, the... it's not, I mean, it's a coincidence, I mean, yeah, but you know but, what I mean? Oh, it's just, it's just tragic. That's what I mean. You but know, this means that, you know, April 4th through July 17th, some people with breakthrough infections died. Yeah. And yet, you know, Walensky CDC director is up there saying, you know, whatever. Anyway. Well, in this whole, you know, obviously this whole time talk explaining away deaths as being, you know, due to the fact that the person who died was like more vulnerable, either because they were older or they had a, you know, pre-existing condition or comorbidity or underlying disease or whatever. Right. You know, this has been a conversation the whole time, but I really feel like, you know, as there starts to be pushback on the pandemic of the unvaccinated framework, which starts to really quickly um, have holes poked in into it because of the breakthrough case issue. Right. You know, what I really feel like you start to see is people really doubling down on the vulnerability rhetoric and the idea that vulnerable deaths are sort of destined to have occurred. And I think this also happens in response to the very clear evidence that we have, you know, by the end of the summer and beginning into the early fall of children getting sick too because it's also used against children that are that are sick and so what we have is this kind of highlighting of of like vulnerable deaths and simultaneous erasure of it right where it's like you're saying like oh yeah yeah you care about those breakthrough breakthrough deaths well those are um already vulnerable people those are deaths pulled from the future like gotcha you're being paranoid and this is kind of like a strategy rhetorically that i feel like starts to really be levied heavy against people who are speaking up about COVID right now, especially about people who are coming from like, um, you know, the sort of like left or left or center democratic, like, 
population, right, who are be- like very quietly and very respectfully questioning the Biden administration, they're being treated also at this point like they're, you know, inspiring anti-vax sentiment and, you know, sowing discord. So um, I'm going to run through the, you know, more recent stuff pretty quickly, I think, because, um, you know, we, we've kind of just gone through this. Listeners may um, you know, re- recall <laughs> listeners will probably recall a lot better, even or more clearly, like mm-hmm. all of the stuff that's just happened. But I'm just going to play a few of the hits really quick. October 12th, 715,679 dead. David Leonhart uh, <laughs> posts COVID and age, um, despite the fact that uh, at that point, over 500 children are dead from COVID-19. He says he literally defends the Emily Oster uh, article about um you know, a child being an unvaccinated child being similar to a vaccinated grandparent saying seven months later with a lot more COVID data available, the debate over the article looks quite different. Oster is the one who has largely been vindicated. If anything, oh, yeah, I remember that article. Subsequent yeah. data indicates she did not go far enough in describing the age skew of COVID. About one week later, October 19th, JG Allen's Washington Post op-ed Schools should do away with mask mandates by the end of the year, which gets us straight to by November 3rd, at the beginning of November, we are in off-ramp territory with uh, Jessica Ah, Gross in the New York Times writing, we need to talk about an off-ramp for masking at school. Ross Barkin writing in The Atlantic, again, The Atlantic, uh, why aren't we even talking about easing COVID restrictions? And Monica Gandhi, of course, writing, it's time to contemplate the end of the crisis um all of them basically suggesting you know we're not going to live with these uh restrictions forever the pandemic's over for you i mean the eua for children ages 5 through 11 years old for the pfizer vaccine did not even come through until october 29th yeah so at at this point with mere weeks not even 10 days of children being able to be vaccinated vaccinated, right? You start to have the conversation of, well, it's time to do off ramps again. Yeah. Right. It's time to talk about reopening even more now. Meanwhile, uh, or shortly after November, let's say 11th, we have the conversation on the show. Um, (laughs) how many deaths were we at this time? Like deaths per day. Were we at this time last year, about a thousand, thousand two hundred or so a day, which is the same as the amount of deaths per day that were happening in November of 2020. Um, so <laughs> we have come, so as we talked about on the show, full circle. It's like we're stuck in time or some shit. While we're having that conversation on November 11th, uh, the Omicron variant is sequenced in Botswana for the first time. Mm-hmm. So that's fun. Um, November 29th, uh, we do our Omicron episode. <laughs> um November 30th, we talked to Justin Feldman about his paper. Um, You should, everyone, you know, that's a recent episode. Everyone should go back and listen to that if you haven't. But, um, and significantly, one thing that comes up uh, in that is that that week, you know, roughly that week of November 30th or maybe the week prior, if, you know, according to, as B was mentioning before, the CDC's own estimates of how many, of how common underreporting is of COVID deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, that week is probably the week that we pass a million COVID deaths in the United States. Although, you know, as we've talked about at the top of the show, it's the, the official figure is only 800,000 currently. Uh, I'm just putting this one in here for um, posterity. December 7th, 
Washington Post headline, Omicron seems to cause milder illness, Fauci says. Mm. I'm just putting that there for, uh, I don't know, this time next year. <laughs> um, and anyway, that basically, that brings us to today. Today, on this day of recording, uh, official death toll has reached 800,000. Of those, as of September 6th, 2021, 514 were children. As of December 11th, 992 were children. We are back over a thousand deaths a day. We have not moved forward. We have moved backwards. I will recall, I will remind you also that while we were at 800,000 deaths as of today, on inauguration day, we were at 414,000. So that means not only have we overtaken, like, you know, there was that thing a few weeks ago where, you know, people I think reacted with shock that we had overtaken the amount of uh, COVID deaths in 2021 compared with 2020. Not only that, but shortly, probably by the time, if we've unlocked this, probably by the time that like this episode is unlocked, um, it will be the case that there will have been more deaths under Biden since he took office than there were cumulatively over the course of the pandemic under Trump. And I I think the thing that's like the the biggest indictment to me and what makes me the most frustrated when you see stuff like what we mentioned at the top, the American prospect piece that said, you know, it was like absurd to even um, criticize the Biden administration here is that so many of those deaths in children happened under Biden and not a single expert I have seen comment on changes um, in the biology and in the fitness of variants has said that they think that the variant has, you know, become um, more transmissible in children. This is not even like being discussed, right? Like some people have talked about variants being more transmissible in general, right? But there isn't anyone out there who's beating the drum like, Oh, you know, the reason why more children have died under Biden than under Trump is that, you know, Delta is more deadly to children than the wild type was. Well, but I mean, I think this also, though, is maybe even more importantly explained by what we brought up earlier, which is like, it's clear that reopening schools in the middle of a raging pandemic has not exactly helped Right, like keep kids from being like put in the fucking hospital. Right, and the the what the administration apologists will say is they will say that well those were all local uh, decisions, and my you know I think the very clear uh, refutation of that is imagine what would have happened had CDC not released the guidance that it did. Yeah. Which, I mean, if you have been to school board meetings, I mean, and I'm not, you know, even talking about the, like, the crazy ones. It's like the, the normal ones, the normal ones, where it, people are looking to that guidance to make decisions about, uh, you know, w- what's happening. That's all they have, right? And that shapes the guidance that, like, state and local health departments put out. It is a keystone of like management and and it really does even though it's a very decentralized uh approach to to sort of regulating public health in the United States the CDC does still play an important and and, and like keystone role in suasion uh on these things i mean that had a huge effect i don't think that you can discount that um uh at all and i think that it's very 
I think that this like mystification uh, has gone on and and continues to go on because there is like this high level of institutional decentralization in the United States. Just because that's true does not mean that the powers of the executive branch are not vast. They are vast in terms of their ability to marshal uh, resources. There are wartime level executive emergency powers that can be invoked uh, to do that. Uh, There are, uh, you know, massive sort of grants of authority that Congress has made over the years. And like, can they be challenged in litigation? Of course they can. Are are courts going to try to strike them down? Of course they are going to try to strike them down. But the point is this, like, even if we're just talking about this, like the realistic constraints on Biden's presidency, Mm -hmm. uh, the failure of the administration to even set up that frack, that political fracture or that fracture along those lines, the uh, along the lines of, do we actually want to protect people yeah, from disease? I mean, you don't disease? get points for not trying. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's like in, in ice skating, yeah, you don't you don't get points for for not attempting uh, the moves, right? It's you have to attempt them, and if you if you fail, you you don't get those points, but you have to at least attempt them. And the the point is that like the any idea that this was going to be some sort of like transformational moment. Um, that like Biden in like uh, marking, a, you know, a, a shift away from the Trump presidency was going to like there's going to be this like transformational moment in which he said, like, th- this is actually what we care about. And we need to like reject this idea that it's like growth at all costs. Like that was purely about vibes. And all of the people who wrote those very glowing um, mm-hmm. uh, prospectuses for the administration at the beginning. There are things that like the American Enterprise Institute put out at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020 that were more far reaching than what the Biden administration has done. <laughs> Let that Sickening. fucking sink in yeah. for a second. Sickening. Uh, like, Absolutely but that sickening. illustrates to me w- why it is. And, and like to say nothing of the fact that the left, like left media such as it is, has largely treated the pandemic as something that's like the remainder in long division. Uh, they're just like, we're just going to like put that aside for a second. Um, yeah. You know, but like I, I think it is significant that the general approach to talking about um, the Biden administration on the sort of mainstream and even center left uh, has been one of, tr- one of pure vibes. One of the idea that like, it's the rhetoric that matters. It's the, di- it's the sort of tonality and the direction that the uh, administration is setting rhetorically that matters as opposed to what actually they do. And I think mm-hmm. even the focus on the CDC is like a little bit, you know, pe- people see the CDC as if it's like the sun and <laughs> it's the thing like casting the light on on earth right it's yeah. the, the cdc is the moon in the presidency right the light that's like is a it gives off a reflection of where the real source of power is which is in the economic management functions uh, of the presidency and the cdc is reflective of those functions and you can see this like very clearly when people talk about the birth of OSHA, even back in the 70s and 80s, the the initial thing that people will always say is like, well, it's really Reagan that like gutted OSHA. It's really Reagan that, um, you know, led to this huge like retrenchment in like the regulation of health and safety standards work. Not thinking about how really after 1978, Carter went full bore uh, in in an assault on 
uh, OSHA, it didn't release any new regulations after the uh, whatever the cotton dust uh, standard. It it instituted cost benefit analysis in OSHA. Mm-hmm. Even it you know it didn't do it as a requirement, but as a guideline, it like set the plinth. For what the Reagan administration did, was it different stylistically? Did they have a more pro-labor OSHA administrator? Yes, they did. Did they actually do a couple regulations, including the cotton dust standard? Yes, they did. But overall, what mattered is not what was happening at OSHA. What mattered, what was happening in the actual uh, institutions that, through the executive branch, run the economy uh, Mm -hmm. or manage uh, like crises of capitalism, which... By 1978, we are emphatically in. And when Biden came into office, we were also in. And if you look at everything Biden has done uh, as being oriented towards the pandemic, uh, it makes no sense. Right. There's none of the actions seem correlated at all. If you look at it as a set of decisions that are about economic management, it at least in a very short term, narrowly rational, systemic defense sort of way. It does sort of make sense because what are we doing? Like we're generating, uh, you know, a resurgence in household spending. Um, We are pushing people back to work. And even if growth is sluggish uh, in in terms of uh, the job market, we can at least that becomes not the president's problem. That's like a a problem of the workers. Because the story story that we just heard or Mm -hmm. the story, you know, that I just kind of told is basically one of the moment that you have any sort of inkling of a possible opening for either like things are slightly show there's like some metric that's showing that is showing slightly better or where you can at least as we were talking about before explain certain things away that are inconvenient to the narr- to that same narrative then like that is seized upon immediately as a moment to as you're saying Phil like do the pro like do the pro capitalist economy thing, right. To like just aggressively reopen as much as you can to make sure that, um, people are that like kids are back in school so that their parents can go to work to make sure that like such and such restriction is either lifted or just like made even further non-existent. Cause so many of these things were just like very loose before. Right. You know, the, the only reason that you do that is if, yeah, like you're saying your priorities, it's like this this dual thing of like clearly your priorities are in the management of capitalism, but also it is clearly what I feel like I hear over and over in this story is like people who have no idea what they're even well, doing. Yes. Not in a bumbling way, but in a I don't think I fundamentally do not believe that they understand how bad every decision that we just talked about was. Right. No, I don't yeah, think well, I, I think that this is a this is certainly a problem when but I think it actually goes a little bit deeper. So like one level of the problem is, OK, there's there are crises, but they don't you know, they're containable as long as you can learn from things, as long as you can learn from your decisions. OK, well, what if you can't what if you like refuse to learn from your decisions? Well, that's bad. <laughs> right. That's bad. But at the very least, there might be other people who see that you don't learn and then are able to like. Uh, intervene at that point. What makes it even worse is it's not merely that you don't learn. It's that you actually believe and have an architecture for re- for pretending that you have learned yeah. uh, in the absence of having learned anything at all. And there is no profession in the world better at this than management consultancy. I mean, this is if you I mean, and, and I think that this is a really important point in like the history of 
in the history of capitalism is like this particular class of people who have, you know, who surround the administration, who staff it and who outside of it interpret its decisions for the world belong to uh, this sort of quasi uh, profession with its series of um, sort of, uh, you know, rhetorical gestures and, and sort of sets of understandings about the world. But like Jeff Zients is like a perfect example of this. He starts mm-hmm. his career at like Bain Capital. Yeah. And it's not merely that he cannot learn why, oh, gee, why would it be a bad idea to have uh, a, a testing strategy that isn't somehow like everybody gets uh, tests sent directly to them and we are able to like draw data from that source Right. It's not merely that it's that he has a rationale for why his position of not doing that. And instead just saying, like, um, we're, we're going to like what, like require people to like get reimbursed in their insurance. He has a rationale <laughs> for why that is better. And yeah. his and the way that he says is like, well, it gives people like multiple uh, access points. We want to give people as most access. Points. Now, of course, yeah, any, any person like listening to that, that's like context free grammar. And it doesn't make any fucking sense. But in that, you know, sort of rhetorical like culture, uh, epistemically, like it makes apparently a lot of sense. And thus, even internally, it's harder for other people to hold him accountable. He doesn't, you know, there's always somebody that says something stupid in meetings, even people with like lots of power. And when that person says that stupid thing, you know, they don't necessarily get their way as long as there are other people in the room who recognize it as fundamentally stupid. The problem occurs in which everybody is in the room, person says the stupid thing, and everyone else in the room also believes the like cosmology of the world in which that thing is not stupid, but in yeah. fact very smart. And yeah. and so like, you know, not to get too much into like sort of corporate psychology or like org behavior side of this, because I think the broader, you know, thing is, is in fact structural and the Biden administration is no different from any other executive branch in terms of the fact that it worships at the altar of capital and not anything else. Um, But I do think the fact that like the personnel are drawn from this class of people who, you know, very much are kind of like live in that milieu like that that does matter i think yeah yeah i mean what what i feel like i i see when this timeline is laid out in front of me is so many missed opportunities for any degree of backbone from the biden administration let's say they can't do anything right let's say this is you know a a pandemic of the unvaccinated, right? And the problem is all red states and Trumpism and misinformation, right? Because I'm sure the biggest pushback we're going to get to this episode is, you know, well, you didn't consider the role that misinformation on Facebook plays in this whole thing or whatever, you know. And that's that is so beside the point because what has been laid out in our conversation today is over and over and over again, after almost no pressure, right? Um, pressure that occurred in these op-eds, right? Uh, these kind of like liberal media op-eds, these, uh, you know, the pages of the Atlantic, right? Once the tiny little bit of pressure came in to roll something back from the op-ed crowd, right? The Biden administration simply could have dug its heels in and said, not quite yet. 
right? Even if they had done nothing more, even if they had let all the pandemic protections expire, including UI, including any of the things that they absolutely shouldn't have let expire, if they had just simply said, not yet, to, you know, two of the requests made by the op-ed crowd, right? We would have been in a completely different scenario, let alone if they had stood up to everything. Well, and by businesses, not just the op-ed crowd, but like the still, but the, the reverse is actually a really important counterfactual that is in some ways the point of focusing on this narrative that we just went through, which is that let's say all of these decisions were set in stone, but the things that are the whatabouts, right? Like Mm -hmm. anti-vaxxers, entrenched Republican governors, uh, Facebook or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, vaccine hesitancy, uh, Politically divisive times and culture. Yeah, whatever whatever explanation you got, right? Right. Whatever explanation you have to defend the Biden administration, even if all of those things were removed, many of the, if not all, of the individual decisions that we talked about and just went through were still bad decisions. Yes. And still would have led to more infections and more deaths because of those decisions, not because of what happened from without them, right? And and yes, and honestly, here's to me what is clear that the Biden team has been banking on this whole time is that in the vast majority of vaccinated people, when they become infected with COVID, they will not be able to differentiate that from a cold infection. Right. They they are betting on the fact that if they can get the vast majority of people vaccinated in the United States, that people will stop noticing when they get sick and they won't feel bad when they spread it to people and kill them. Right. Because ultimately, no, or even no, or even no, they certainly right? won't blame the administration. No. And then it's blame the individual, of course. Right. Yeah. Blame you know, the unvaccinated. Should have been um, washing your hands more. Right. Which like, absolutely. We should all be fucking washing our hands a lot more. But we can't hand wash our way out of a pandemic. Right. And or we're not going to. pandemic. Right. We're matter. not going to be boosting our way out of this one either. Unfortunately, we cannot continue to rely on vaccine only strategies as if you know, we have to do this with our hands tied behind our backs. We don't need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and struggle on here. We have tools that we employed during the first year of the pandemic that should have continued, that would have really been a lot of help here, right? But this kind of insistence of, well, we need to, like, return to the bare minimum of protection at all times, right? As if any additional precautionary protection measures that we could be taking in a proactive stance, like we ask people to do and think about with their own frameworks of their own individual health, right? We're so committed to preventative health in this country. You would think, right, that there would be room for a framework for discussing NPIs and masking as a preventative measure, right? Culturally, it's used as a preventative measure in all sorts of societies, Right. And among communities in the United States, like chronically ill people, many of whom have been masking for years, like myself, because, you know, the fact of the matter is prior prior to the pandemic. pandemic. You have to say that now that the pandemic has itself lasted years. It's it's uncanny. Right. And and the fact of the matter is, is that rather than um, take any precautionary approach to this, it has been pursuing this purely aesthetic 
lean version of a pandemic response that is never, ever um, erring on the side of a little too much precaution. And I think that that, uh, that sort of desire to appear to be lean, to appear to be sort of handling it offhand with as little mitigation as possible, right? And the the suppression of data that has had to happen in order to maintain that picture and the sort of things that have gone into maintaining that picture that are honestly like authoritarian gestures of top-down power, right? In terms of messaging and crafting and and really telling people that your experience is not valid and your you you know your your embodied experience of this pandemic is not relevant, right? Which is sort of the message to medically vulnerable people all along is that you know, who who gives a shit if you get sick and die, right? Yeah. Um, you don't matter to our society. Who who cares if these children died because they were medically vulnerable? And I think they really all along have been betting on the fact that if they could just get enough people vaccinated, people would not notice yeah. getting sick. And the fact of the matter is, though, like that just fundamentally shows how they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Right. Well, because I mean, we can't predict, we can't depend on viruses to behave at all. But this is the thing is that like even the very even let, let, let's assume for a second that you don't buy my um, Marxist analysis of the like my structural analysis of the presidency. OK, let's assume that you're like your standard issue, like Lib, you believe that the purpose of institutions is to like you know, legit to do self-legitimation for the structure of government that we are supposed to have, like democracy or whatever the fuck we have. Um, even in that world, what the Biden administration has failed to do has actually undermined, uh, like, you know, the the one thing that is supposed to, like, on like a legitimacy level, like, uh, perpetuate the idea that, like, yeah, government can solve some problems sometimes, right? Even that's, like, destroyed. Right. In, in the service of doing one thing and one thing only, which is compelling us to consume and to produce like that is where the thing where it's like, yeah, I, you know, OK, are there like authoritarian trends in the United States, like on the rise that like, you know, creep me out? Yes. Like at some visceral level. But also it's worth re- recalling that like authoritarianism doesn't always look like it doesn't always look in, you know, people don't wear uniforms. They don't, you know, necessarily shout nationalist phrases. Authoritarianism like is like, Trump, you know? yeah, sometimes authoritarianism, it looks like Emily Oster. Right. It, it like, and I think we've known this for a while. It's like authoritarianism has changed. It's not, you know, it might be very conducive to like bottom up like fascist movements. Sure. But like actually what it is about is being able to compel people to do actions, to take actions that they would not ordinarily do to have thoughts perhaps that they would not ordinarily have to have thoughts that that actually are very highly contrastive with their understanding of what they can see in front of them and it is in that sense that i think what's happened over the last 12 months has been so like disturbing and dizzying to me uh which is that we have like that that sort of thing has has in fact happened we've been there there's been a uh, movement towards to to compel people uh, to resume um, life as normal, um, and a I think there has been a sort of rhetorical cabining of critics uh, mm-hmm. of uh, of this approach, and and I don't know, it's I don't even know that it feels like a quote unquote gaslighting 
to me as it might as, as it does just like you know plain vanilla like hegemonic discourse is like gradually yeah. the, the the critiques that people have they get tired of making them over and over again and they they feel like they have no audience and 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 they are forced to do the thing that's like the one of the most demobilizing things in the world which is to watch people who have no fucking clue what they're talking about in many different institutions media academia uh you know officialdom of washington you know not just say dumb things but be praised for saying them yeah. that is the like the you know that is the thing that feels like incredibly disempowering um now and that- and yeah, that sounds to me those last few statements like a personal year in review. That sounds like my year in review. Yeah. yeah, watching that shit happen. But I think it's the case for a lot of people. A lot of a lot of people have seen have have been forced to watch these things, been forced to look at the way that other people have to endure these things, and to have the idea in their head implanted there that maybe they're being overly wishful about what could have happened, what, how it could have been otherwise, or the idea that um, maybe they're just being a crank. Yeah. And I think that that's a, it's a horrifying, um, it's a horrifying sort of um, mental kind of gymnastics that you have to go through. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think with that, I want to say thank you from all of us for uh, sticking with us this year. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you to each and every one of our patrons, each and every one of our listeners. Um, we are, you know, it's been very, frankly, I'll just, you know, I'm going to be, uh, yeah, it's really difficult. I gotta be honest. Like, um, this has been a hard episode for me. I'll just say personally, this is very hard to go through this. This has been alternating between really difficult and extremely aggravating. Um, also doing the research for it was, and frankly, looking back and seeing, I was telling B this last night, but I look back on our, we, we make these outlines for the show. These, you know, um, you know, still like stuff for each of us to kind of like look at and think about stuff that we kind of want to make sure to reference maybe, or just, you know, so that we kind of know what we're talking about. Um, just like a shared internal document. And going through, I can see stretches where I'm like, wow, I was like depressed. Like no one was fucking listening to this shit. And we're just like screaming into the void about this stuff. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's hard because I don't know. I guess all all I'm trying to say is um, that we really appreciate all the support. I feel like as frustrating as all of this is, it has felt very important to do. And I think we look forward is not the right word for it, but we're going to be here in uh COVID year three. So this has been COVID year two, everybody. And, uh, you know, we're going to keep seeing what happens. Um, I will say though, um, let me just give you a preview of COVID year three from friend of the show, Jacob Bacharach, um, <laughs> from a post that he did on Twitter in January. This is, um, I found this, uh, sometimes I put tweets on the outline. So like I found this going through old outlines and I was like, hell yeah, this is, but yeah, I I think anyway, this, this tweet from friend of the show, Jacob Backrack, um, really says a lot of what I would expect from COVID year three years, three and on words really. 
It'll be like HIV AIDS. A combination of prophylactic treatment and post-infection intervention will render it functionally non-existent for the top 50% in rich countries, while in poor communities and countries it circulates with varying severity for the next 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I'm just incredibly grateful for getting to do the show because I feel like it's been hard to to tell if I've been like more sad or more angry this year as a consistent emotion, like... You know, it's like a... And you were, both. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, and I I think it's been really um, important to me to be able to channel this into, like, talking about it on the show. And, you know, I think the discussion around parallels to um, the way that, you know, the sort of tail end of the the making of the end of the HIV-AIDS epidemic is a really good parallel. And I think it should be a really stark warning, um about the fight that we have ahead of us too, which I think it's, it's, you know, it would be remiss of us to not to pretend like it's not uphill, but also like what good fight is ever downhill. Well, and also, but this is the thing too, like the narrative that we just went through, even the, the, the simplicity, the literally all we did was put two and two together (laughs) all afternoon, just on, on this recording. Right. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I don't think I should have been the one to have to fucking do that. Yes. <laughs> it sucks that we had to do that. And I can't, the, the reason that we, you know, recorded this, I think is because, and the reason that we did all the shows that we did over the course of the year really is like fucking no one else was doing that. It's <laughs> not, and, not yeah, no it's, it's, one else entirely. There are some, you know, we've caught, we've mostly shouted out the names of people who have been on top of it, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I often like dip back into the world uh, and try to, try to give myself an excuse to not <laughs> have to look as clear. You know, it's like, this is not a, you know, I think it's not my natural inclination. It's much harder than actually what I usually have to do. Um, and uh, it's, it's, I think also this is like a, you know, actually does force me to like step back from the total like PMC world that I uh, uh, like reside within and and sort of the professional like logics, which are very much in tune with all of this shit. I mean, it's like it's, you know, very much part of this like reproductive apparatus and uh, step back from it and say, like, this is actually just incredibly intellectually dishonest. And, uh, you know, here here's what is actually seems to be happening. So I don't think I, there's any other venue I could actually do that in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think I'm just going to leave us with uh, this one little part of a poem by Essex Hemphill from sort of the middle to end of the HIV AIDS epidemic from his poem, When My Brother Fell. When I stand on the front lines now, cussing the lack of truth, the absence of willful change, and strategic coalitions, I realize sewing quilts will not bring you back nor save us. It's too soon to make monuments, for we are all losing, for the lack of truth as to why we are dying, who wants us dead, what purpose does it serve? Yeah. Yeah. So, patrons, thank you so much for supporting our work. We really appreciate it. Thank you for sticking with us. Um, If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us at DeathPanel underscore and if you're listening to this and you're not a patron become one at patreon.com slash death panel pod if you can 
And as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week. It's a fine day, people open windows, they leave their houses just for a short while. It's a fine day, people open windows, they leave their houses just for a short. It's, it's a fine day, people open windows, they leave their houses just for a short while. It's a fine day, people open windows, they leave their houses just for a short while. It's going to be a fight.